we got to first look to our God, don't we, in prayer. And so, Father, what we're thank you, thanking you now for is that as the sovereign God, you are the God of past, present, and future. And you have so designed the scriptures in the way that things that are recorded in the past have incredible relevance to the present. But it's the student of your word, Lord, that needs to be able to see the bridge and walk over it. Likewise, for all the people of all these services, we need to help people in the culture to understand how your word being bridged by their lives into the minds and the hearts of the unbelievers around here. Your word is what is going to be central and preeminent to the way in which we live our lives. So, Father, what we're asking is that once again you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills, Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Saturday, yesterday, across the nation was a series of Civil War reenactments where there would be actors who would be portraying Abraham Lincoln that would be standing up in front of a crowd on reading the Gettysburg Address. Now, the reason why that was taking place was that on November 19th of 1863, Mr. Lincoln began that phrase four score and seven years ago. And people would be leaning forward, trying to be able to grasp every single word being uttered. To eulogize Abraham Lincoln at the time of his death, Senator Charles Sumner referred to this most famous speech ever given by Lincoln. And in his eulogy of the slain president, he called the Gettysburg Address, quote, a monumental act to be remembered, unquote. He said that Lincoln was mistaken that, quote, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, unquote. But rather, that great Bostonian, Sumner, remarked, quote, the world noted at once what he said and will never cease to remember. I pondered that in the convergence of that address to the wording in the Nehemiah 13 passage. Because not once, not twice, not three times, but four times you will find the word remember appearing. For example, check out with me verse 14, where it's almost as if Nehemiah is looking for a way to succinctly shoot off one of these brief prayers to God. So you don't see him texting it. Remember me, O my God. Concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Let your eyes roll down now to verse 22. We're at the end of that verse. He prays, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me 
according to the greatness of your steadfast love. But then he inches us forward to the end of this chapter. Because in verse 29 he adds, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Only for a fourth time, utilizing that word remember, calls out in this last breath of prayer, Remember me, in verse 31, O my God, for my good. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times this word appears as I pondered the significance of yesterday and the whole matter of remembrance and this passage of today where Nehemiah is longing for a sense of remembrance. It's the sense of remembrance now as you make your way to the final verses of the final chapter of this book, which I believe in many ways is God's masterpiece manual for developing spiritual leadership that allows you and allows me to draw still three more distinctives of this whole matter of cultivating, developing spiritual leadership as we move people forward to fulfill the vision of the work of God in the region that God has placed us in. And the first distinctive comes out of verses 1 through 9, and you'll pick it up again in 23 through 31. We're going to put it like this, to continue advancing God's work, which was what Nehemiah was all about, to continue advancing God's work. Note, first of all, number one, when relational separation is essential. There are going to be times when you as an individual or if you're a parent and you've got children who are somehow, some way, in the earlier years of their lives becoming ensnared relationally with others that are beginning to pull them away from who matters most and what matters most. That individual is going to have to have all the wisdom from above necessary to deal with the wisdom that seems to crowd our hearts from below. At what point, under what circumstances, do you have to say, okay, I need to separate myself from that or from him or from her for the sake of my own well-being? In this one, you and I are told that on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Do you see how significant that is? What they are doing at this point is setting up boundaries for the heart based upon the Word of God. Not based upon the preferences of a parent, not based upon the prejudices of a particular leader, but rather rooted in the Word of God. He and He alone is the one that sets up the boundaries. What's in, what's out. Here's why this is so important. Read on a little bit. And what you will find here, and in no, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And you say, Gary, that is just so exclusive. How does that relate to an inclusive culture? We are living with the tension of the inclusive and exclusive in this nation today. But I would say the same thing is true for the churches nationwide. To what degree is one to be inclusive and to what degree is one to be exclusive? And where do you draw the line? 
No, that's not the question. The question is, who draws the line? If you start drawing the line, you will be viewed as intolerant. Intolerance is one of the highest virtues secularly in our nation today. Now the question is, who draws the line? And where is the line being drawn? And we would argue, biblically, the line is drawn in distinguishing what is true from what is false. And furthermore, what is right from what is wrong. This afternoon, when you're watching a favorite football game, or tonight, you notice with me that when the, when the sidelines are being marked out, they are marked out clearly, but they are also marked out early. They are marked out before the game begins, not in the midst of the game, where somebody catches the ball and all of a sudden everybody raises their hands, is that in or is that out? But if the lines were not drawn, who knows? It's up to the relativistic mindset of whoever makes that final call. Do they simply have the players vote on it? Do they turn to the stands and ask, what do you think? You see, see, the boundaries have got to be marked out early, and the boundaries have got to be marked out clearly. Where do you go when you are dealing with the tension of the inclusive versus exclusive in a culture such as that and in a culture such as ours today? This is, this is where it's at. And family has got to figure this out, too. And how does God's word fit into establishing what's in and what's out early and how it's to be mocked out via parenting? Or if you're single, how you internalize this and then explain your value system to others that you hang with, why it's to be mocked out clearly. Where do you begin? Notice what this spiritual leader does. He begins not with political opinion. He begins with biblical perspective. On that day, they read from the book of Moses, and he is the governor. He is a political figure. They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Not a privatized hearing, but a public hearing. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And you say, but Gary, that just sounds so intolerant. Which is, again, one of the big issues of the hour in our culture of today. This Ammonite-Moabite thing, I don't think I've ever bumped into an Ammonite or Moabite before. And so you're asking, uh, why them? And why should they be separated out? You're asking great questions this morning. Because in Genesis chapter 19, you and I are informed this. Both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. In verse 37 of the 19th chapter of the first book, the firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. This is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Throughout the course of time, there was a tension between the Jews and these people groups. And it had to do with the promised land and who truly had the right 
And it's still being played out in 2016 today in the promised land as to who has the rights. And in particular, Jerusalem. Now you're getting the entire historical flavor behind what Nehemiah politically and what is needing to be addressed biblically unfolds. So we are told here no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. That's not enough. He goes on to give them a historical overview as to why this is so, as to what extent these people groups were so anti-Jew, anti-Semitism. Because in verse 2, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, speaking of the exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness, but hired Balaam. Now, he was a prophet. He was a prophet seeking a prophet. He was... He was clergy for the hire. And the Moabites, you see, the Ammonites, found somebody who, religiously speaking, could speak against the word of God. But here's the rub. Notice what comes next. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Anytime and every time you feel as though Somebody is turning the tables, and you no longer have an opportunity to fully articulate the word of God to a, a spiritually deafened culture. Watch how God can take the curse and turn it into the blessing. But the danger here was the danger at this point of compromise. For while Nehemiah had spent a year away back in Susa, modern-day Iran, in order to meet with the king, because he had promised that he would come back and report in, as we saw in the opening chapters, a spiritual decline was taking place within the walls of Jerusalem. And there was a growing sense of spiritual inclusiveness to such a degree that people would then find it offensive when somebody would along who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, you see. It's 1948. And the Jews in Jerusalem were slowly being strangled by the Islamic population surrounding them as the Jews had regained statehood. Now, some of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis, let me say it again, some of, amazingly, you wouldn't expect this, but some of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis spoke to none other than Dov Yosef, globally known Canadian lawyer in charge of supplying the remaining Jews in Jerusalem. And they wanted to surrender their own quarter, at least work out a deal with the Muslim Arabs surrounding strangling the Jews in Jerusalem. Because their quarter had been hard hit by the Arab legion's shelling. And at least their women and children would be spared if they, if they struck a deal. They were prone to strike a deal with a spiritual opponent. Now, Yosef knew that a recourse, recourse would infect the whole city with Panic, so he told he told the rabbis, quote, 
You do what you believe to be right, and I shall do what I believe to be right. And there was a long silence. And finally, one of the rabbis asked Dov Yosef what he believed was right. And he responded, quote, I think that if anyone attempts to raise the white flag, he should be shot, unquote. So much for tolerance. Now, you and I live in a culture of attention, a spectrum of tension, of the inclusive, exclusive. And how do you introduce an absolute such as I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through me. When even in the most sacred of settings, the absolutes are getting compromised nationally and globally, where people are prone to say, well, I better not teach that because that will come across as too absolutist. And that will rub people wrong. But you can't embrace salvation until you first of all embrace the fact that we are sinners in need of salvation. And we need all the truth. Not some of it. Not a pop-psychologized pulpit but a biblically enriched pulpit. In verse 2, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so as soon as the people heard the law, God's word, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. What interests me is that the same Hebrew word used for separated here they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent, was used in Genesis to describe when Lot separated himself from Abram. What all this has in common was the tension of who owns property in the Middle East in that promised land. What you see here, then, is the problem of mixed beliefs that had made their way into the political realm and made their way even into, into the teaching, the biblical teachings. But here's the challenge. Left unchecked, the mixture becomes a fixture. Left unchecked, the mixture becomes a fixture, and evangelicalism gets compromised. Teach the word. Live the word. Communicate the word. Let the word be the word. And make it clear that it comes from God. It's not an opinion. It comes from our lips. Now, this is dramatic. Back to Jerusalem. I'm fascinated to hear this from the Italian prime minister speaking to Israeli prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the United Nations. Quote, To say that the Jewish people have no connection to Jerusalem is like saying that the sun creates darkness, quote, unquote. That comes out of World Magazine, recent edition. So now there's tension. There's tension being described by Nehemiah then. There's tension in 2016 now, but that's not all. Because if you spotted the mixed beliefs in 1 through 3, You've got to also recognize that out of the mixed beliefs came a mixed leadership in 4 through 9. And this is remarkable. 
Notice what is occurring. Now before this, Eliashib the priest. Did you mark that? Eliashib the priest. Who was appointed over the chambers of where? The house of God. Do you remember last week where, where the worship teams met in their choreographic moment at the house of God as they sang what I described as the point of convergence where the sacrifices were to be made? Now, Eliashib is to be the pastor, the minister, the rabbi, whatever you want to call him here, the priest, at the point of convergence. But amazingly, and you don't want to overlook verse 4, the end, he was related to Tobiah. You've been tracking in the opening chapters, and you realize that Tobiah was absolutely opposed to the construction of the walls of Jerusalem. See, he's representing one of those groups of people that were just described, the Moabites. He's their governor. He has been invited by the priests in Jerusalem into the house of God to pitch his tent and live there. And live there in style, he did. Prepared for to buy a large chamber in verse 5 where they had previously, not currently, previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine and oil. All the things that were pointing everybody in the direction of God have now been marginalized, displaced, pushed off to the side. And now the Moabite belief system has been brought in. And the governor of the Moabites is there in the center of the house of God. You see. Now, there will be some Jews that might say, but we're, we're, we're so tolerant and we're so inclusive. You know, let's have a Jew, let's have a, a Moabite, and uh, maybe add a few otherites while we're at it, and let's just have one spiritual party. But then comes verse 6. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. You see, the challenge, I believe biblically, is the challenge of substitution. We have taken now the governor of the Ammonites and put him in the house of God and removed all things pertaining to God and marginalized them, and a substitution has occurred. Substitution seems to be the issue historically and individually among us. In the Genesis account, when humankind fell, mankind had substituted himself for good. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God substituted himself for humankind. What we have is the clash of substitution. The wise leader, the wise parent, single, married, young, old, rich, poor, and everything in between, has to recognize that on the spectrum of tolerance-intolerance, 
Absolute versus relativism is the tension of who substitutes for whom. Does humanity substitute self in place of God, or has God at the cross of Jesus Christ substituted itself in place of humanity? Astoundingly, the substitution has taken place at the house of God. William Booth. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once said to a group of new officers, quote, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. You campers know that. There was a tremendous revival that took place in Nehemiah chapter 8. But now time has marched on. And that blazing, glowing fire has been reduced. Now we've got a flicker. And God is being marginalized, and false belief is being centralized. It takes a wise and courageous spiritual leader to step in. And so he says in verse 8, I was very angry. Now the wise spiritual leader understands what I will call strategic anger, strategically expressed anger. If it's just simply ongoing anger day in, day out, day in, day out, that is so predictable that people just turn that person off. It's just an angry guy. He's got issues. But when there is strategically expressed anger about matters of ultimate significance, it gets the attention of the people. And so there, he, he knew that the garbage, truck, garbage trucks were coming down the streets of Jerusalem, Nehemiah did. So what does he do? I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Big old yard sale, you see. Did you notice that Tobiah's name ends in I-A-H and that Nehemiah's name ends in I-A-H? Do you feel the tension here? The sense of, well, maybe he's with us. Maybe he's one of us, this Tobiah. Question. Guy in Tobias in your life? To continue advancing God's work, note when relational separation is essential. Who are you dating if you're single? Could this lead to an unequally yoked relationship? There is pain in separation. But when necessary, do it early. Don't wait until it's too late. Sojournetsen at the Harvard University commencement stated, must one point out that from ancient times a decline in moral courage has been considered the beginning of the end? Speaking of the decline of Western culture. And so there we have it. To continue advancing God's work, note when relational separation is essential, 1 through 9, 23 through 31. But here is a second. To continue advancing God's work, note second of all why financial support is critical. Verse 10. 
I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to the fields. No longer was the ministry being financed. In other words, it ceased to be an authentic ministry and simply became religious activity. Nationally and globally, we've got to be able to distinguish between churches that it might come across as ministry, but what it really is is simply religious activity. It can be exciting. It can be dynamic. But do you begin with the word, flesh it out from there like Nehemiah did in verse 1? So I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his fields, his field. So notice now the tremendous wisdom of Nehemiah when it came to spiritual leadership of balance. He balances the negative and the positive. Negatively, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Positively, and I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And all Judah did what? Now he's going to reverse this process. All Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, oil into the storehouses where Tobiah had been centered. And then he appoints treasurers over the storehouses. And you see the names. And then we are told here at the end of verse 13 that these people were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. I want to pause here to simply say how thankful I am for the finance committee and for those that oversee finance of this church. And these people combine ability and integrity. And they serve for God's glory. And we praise God for that. And so because of the way in which the leadership has so established this and brought back what mattered most, Nehemiah now cries out, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. Dr. Roy Lauren tells of a Christian businessman who had been traveling in Korea time years past. In a field by the side of the road was a young man pulling a rude plow while an old man held the handles. And the businessman was amazed as he took pictures. Just curious. I suppose these people are very poor, he said to the missionary who was both interpreter and guide. Well, yes, said the quiet reply. Those two men happened to be Christians. When the church was being built, they were eager to give something toward it, but they had no money. So they decided to sell their one and only oxen and give the proceeds to the church. In the spring, they're pulling the plow themselves. The businessman was silent for a few moments and then said, that must have been a real sacrifice. Response. They did not call it that, said the missionary. They knew that they were giving to God via the church. They rather thought it was fortunate that they had an ox to sell. We can learn a lot in America of what's been happening particularly in South Korea and elsewhere, where the Spirit is moving powerfully. And we need to be able to embrace this. Because a ministry that costs 
nothing is a ministry which accomplishes nothing. And David understood that when he was given the threshing floor to finance the construction of the temple. But thirdly, to continue advancing God's work, note how biblical Sabbath is beneficial. We note it when relational separation is essential. We note it why financial support is critical. But now thirdly, we note how biblical Sabbath is beneficial. And you pick it up now and you look carefully at verse 15. And in those days I saw Judah, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also on wine, also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sowed food. Let's camp on that for just a minute. And ponder the significance of how God instituted the concept of the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, God did six days' worth of work. And then we are told, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. Genesis 2.2. 2. Start it with God. Then you tag it to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day, he says, to keep it holy. We begin to ask ourselves, what can I learn from this? You know, when Jesus was being confronted by the Pharisees because he was working on the Sabbath they had their own interpretation and rewritten the intention and the significance and the meaning of Sabbath. And there's Jesus healing on the Sabbath. How are we to understand all this? What we see in Jesus' response to the Pharisees is that there are exceptions to that principle there are first what you and I might describe as works of piety, such as the teaching of God's word. Second of all, works of necessity, such as in that time period, rescuing an ox that falls into a ditch. And thirdly, works of mercy, such as when a physician or a physician's assistant, nurse, paramedic, jumps in to resolve something that's of necessity for the sake of caring for the needs of that person physically. For he that is entered into his rest, he also ceased from his own works as God did from his. So in light of the pushback that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, what do we make of all this? Are you fascinated? Are you fascinated by the idea that the fourth commandment does not say, remember the seventh day, but rather says, remember the Sabbath day? You ponder the significance of that. There is a difference. The difference is the distinction between proportion and order. That when the commandment specifies that six of our days are for some duty and the remaining portion of the week, one-seventh to be exact, it avoids commanding us to remember the seventh day in order, in the order of time. 
that it might command us to observe the seventh day in the proportion of time. So what we are interested in here is not the, not the order of time, but the proportion of time. The issue there is not the order of time. The issue is the proportion of time. Why is that so significant? The one in seven principle is necessary to enlarge our souls as we worship our Lord. To set that one out of seven aside to honor God. In the book, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, the writer states, while reflecting upon his captivity in a POW camp, During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste, for example. In the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays, had no time for worship. For years, Phyllis, my wife, had encouraged me to join the family at church. She never nagged, didn't scold, just kept hoping, but I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend maybe one or two short hours a week thinking about what matters most. But now the sights and the sounds and the smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. Now I wanted to know about that part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. But in heartbreak, which was the name the POWs gave to our prison camp, but in heartbreak, solitary confinement, there was no pastor, there was no elder, there was no Bible, there was no teaching of the word or singing of praise to God. And then I underline what comes next. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. And the one in seven principle is to remind us how empty life is without God. And so not once, not twice, not three times, four times. Nehemiah brings this sense of remembrance to the forefront. Charles Sumner. The Gettysburg Address is a monumental act. He said Mr. Lincoln was mistaken that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. But rather the Bostonian remarked, quote, the world noted at once what he said and will never cease to remember. And when we ponder what took place yesterday in the reenactments of incredible sacrifice on the battlefield of life, we consider the ultimate form of remembrance when we ponder the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefield of life. Nehemiah calls out for remembrance. And God wants to remember how you and I live for Jesus. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thank you for studying Nehemiah together with me.
we pray that we are raising the next generation of spiritual leaders for God's glory. Let's stand together. Want to be true to your word? Want to be true to the intent of what's here? Don't want to be popular for the sake of it all. Just want to be God-honoring. That's what we as a congregation want to be. Bless this congregation. Protect it from the evil one. He would seek to disrupt the integrity of the word and the authority that is found in you. May we find ways to communicate the principles that are found here that make a difference in this culture. So thank you, Father. You are God. And we honor you. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.